surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. And welcome to Let's Talk About It. This is your host, Taylor, and I hope that you are taking care of yourselves. I hope you are feeling excited coming into today's episode because I'm very excited about my guest. And before we get into stuff today, I am currently recording this introduction on Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, And so I do want to take a few minutes to just kind of process through some of my own thoughts around this and, you know, have a little solo conversation by myself that hopefully you benefit from. (laughs) Gotta love podcasting. So before we start talking about, I'm going to have Dr. Ricky Siegel on the podcast in this episode, um, who is co-founder and co-director of Modern Sex Therapy Institutes, where I'm getting my PhD in clinical sexology from. Uh, But today, as I'm recording this, it's Indigenous Peoples Day. Originally was a national holiday for Columbus Day. And I, I don't, I can't tell if it's just that I'm burnt out, that I'm jaded, but I'm just feeling like very pessimistic about celebrating. And I know in a lot of ways, it maybe isn't necessarily my day to celebrate. I'm not sure that it's a day. Uh, I, I think the purpose, right, is like to remember is at least what I hear from white people is what I hear from politicians. And I do think obviously in any of these conversations, we need to center and we need to listen to indigenous people and actually do the, the things that they're saying. Um, and I, I know that there was some push for, you know, Indigenous Peoples Day to be a holiday, uh, which it's been, and, and that's great. And I also know that that's not it. This can't be it. And the way that it's a holiday, I don't know if that truly actually honors what is needed or that people take it seriously. I think a lot of people take it as, you know, maybe they get the day off, maybe they get to go have a vacation. It's not, uh, you get what I'm saying? Okay. It doesn't seem like it's actually used to benefit. It kind of feels a little bit like a distraction in some ways of like, okay, we're going to have this day, you know, that is for celebrating, honoring, remembering the struggles of indigenous peoples. And, you know, we're still going to have Thanksgiving and it still is listed as Columbus Day, at least in my eye calendar. I can't delete it. It still says Columbus Day. Um, It says in some states or something that it isn't recognized. Um, And in Washington state, it is not, which I'm like very happy about. But Sometimes it just feels like uh, it's a distraction, you know, to not not having as much fire for those other things like land back, right? Um, the things that really actually create significant change and like, uh, what's the word? 
like, <laughs> I can't think of the word, uh, amends, amends is the word, things that actually create significant change and make amends in some way, those things aren't necessarily happening. I don't know that like having a holiday of Indigenous Peoples Day does that. And at the same time, I know just even having Indigenous in our national calendar is a huge part of representation and acknowledgement, which is also necessary. So, you know, I think I find myself kind of balancing the in-between here again of like, okay, I can acknowledge it as, as something, but it's not everything. It's not the end of things. Just because this is there doesn't mean, you know, that we just say, oh, okay, amends are made, change is made, you know, all that's in the past. Um, because Indigenous people are still here. Um, and, you know, I, I really hope that you do spend the day listening to Indigenous folks, educating yourself a little bit more, donating, um, paying money, paying rent in Seattle here um, with the Duwamish community. Uh, we have real rent that we pay. Some people choose to. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I hope that you don't take the day for granted. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to like suffer in that or feel all this shame or feel all this guilt. So like there is so much beauty, so much beauty within the indigenous culture. Um, a book I will very gladly, happily recommend is Braiding Sweetgrass. That book is so freaking phenomenal. So phenomenal. Um, there's so many indigenous, indigenous creators on Instagram and I encourage you to check out, that I encourage you to, um, you know, engage with, follow their work, support them however you can. Um, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm part jaded and, and burnt out and part hopeful and still passionate. And yeah, I wish we would have had a, uh, you know, indigenous person on to kind of talk a little bit more about this day. And unfortunately we don't, it is just me, but, um, I hope you feel seen in some way. I hope I've made sense here. I hope, uh, you can take something away from this that is helpful. And now we can talk a little bit about what this episode is going to be. And the interview that you're going to hear is with Dr. Rich, Dr. Ricky Siegel, um, who, like I said, is co-founder and co-director of Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. Um, he helps basically train sex therapists and uh, he and also trains sex uh, medicine specialists, um, which I think is like very unique. Uh, but he does this at multiple sites throughout the country and also online. Um, he He's located in Florida and is a licensed mental health counselor and board certified sex therapist and is certified by ASECT as well as a sex therapist and supervisor. Uh, he's been in the field for almost 30 years uh, working in sexuality education and addiction treatment. He teaches on college campuses and also has a private sex therapy practice. Um, he really has done so many things within this field. So, uh, He's 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 a hoot, okay? Um, I'm letting you know, Ricky's a hoot, and really appreciate him taking the time uh, to come on and chat with us and share a bit of his experience. I'll also say before we get 
completely into the episode uh, to check out the links in the episode notes. Um, if you're interested in attending any courses or getting into one of the sex therapy or sex educator or sex certification programs at Modern Sex Therapy Institutes, you can check out the link in there. I have an affiliate link on there now. So if you're interested in doing sex coaching, being a sex educator, being a sex therapist, um, I highly recommend you go to that link and check it out and you can get some more information on the programs. You can even sign up if you want to. Um, but with all of that said, we can now get into our interview with Ricky. So let's talk about it. All right. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ricky Siegel. Thank you for uh, being here. I am really, really happy to be here with you. It's my pleasure. Yeah. This is really overdue because you are one of the directors in my program at Modern Sex Therapy Institutes and you've taught and, you know, I see you on the screen and I've talked with Rachel and Joe and they've both been on here as guests and this is so overdue. So I'm so happy to have you here finally. I know. And and me too. I've been waiting my turn to get to meet you and and spend (laughs) some time with you, really. Yeah, it is overdue and I'm I'm delighted. Yes. Well, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit like just kind of how you got into this field in the first place um, and how like, you know, you got to being one of the directors of the program. You've been in the sex field for some time. Yes. It blows my mind. And uh, uh, every day I feel either like I'm dreaming and it's like, I can't believe it's happening or like I got some gig that I'm, I can't believe I'm getting away with for this long. (laughs) Uh, Like I'm waiting for someone to say, Hey, the jig is up. Mm-hmm. But actually coming up on 30 years, and, and I yeah. can uh, honestly say it was a, a series of happy accidents my entire career. I never mm. planned any of it. There was never a day that I said, I want to be a sex therapist. Um, I, you know, was a uh, high school kid that was probably too smart for my own good and mm. a little too much of a stoner and thought that pharmacy school would be a good idea, mm. uh, which like, for all the wrong reasons. So uh, my ending up in Florida was really just a kind of, uh, you know, uh, mulligan. Uh, And then when I made that big shift to leave some demons up north, uh, my my brother happened to have been working as first male sexuality educator uh, for Planned Parenthood in Florida on some, at that time in the late 80s, a new male responsibility grant for teen Mm. pregnancy prevention. Mm-hmm. And I came down to uh, pretty much crash on his couch for three months in 1989 and haven't left yet. Yeah. Found uh, reason to, uh, but <clears throat> ended up uh, kind of parlaying my pharmacy school uh, know-how into uh, uh, working in the drug and alcohol treatment mm-hmm. industry. But it was right at that cusp when, you know, mom and pop, a, a steeped kind of old school treatment centers, the old 28-day model, started mm-hmm. to turn into the little mini psych hospitals that they are now. So it's a rant for another time. But um, my career there, uh, I, I got the, the craps of it quick. Uh, but mm-hmm. it was when my brother was doing sex ed and I was working in, in uh, addictions and we realized that those lines were, that's what ended up being my doctoral dissertation. Right. When I got my clinical sexology PhD, it was on sexuality issues and addiction treatment and recovery because that entire industry 
wasn't touching it. Yeah. And my brother and I ended up, we found out later, my brother and I in Florida and folks like Doug Ron Harvey in San Diego and just a couple of other people scattered around the country, Lisa Schultz in Nebraska of all places, right? Few people were, 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 were doing this. Mm-hmm. We're going into treatment centers talking about sex. And uh, so it was kind of crazy. But as I said, um, I didn't want anything to do with people coming to get off drugs. And the first thing I did was put them on drugs. And mm-hmm. right. I left. I mean, I really left. I took a little inheritance money had and like opened a coffee shop in Delray Beach before there were coffee houses outside of your neck of the woods. Right. <laughs> it was outside of Washington. It was still yeah. You know, people come in after. It was this perfect mix in Delray Beach of like the recovery community, which, you know, is like a mecca down here. Mm-hmm. There's a treatment center on every corner, still is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of aging hippies and, and kind of artsy folks uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, retirees, a lot of New mm-hmm. York Jews, right? Mm-hmm. And they'd always like mix in this coffee shop. You know, folks would come in after theater like, oh, it's like Vintage Village in the 60s. And there'd be like bikers and t- table of gay folks from the AA meeting over the gay AA meeting over there and folks from the biker, the sober biker meeting over here and the after theater crowd all just interacting. And it was all just this crazy, wonderful scene. Uh, and through it, I uh, met and fell in love with my ex, and it was just, it was like really should, uh, I bet you got the connections to help me. It would make a great movie. It was like 10 years of life just happened in this compressed, barely two and a half year period. Yeah. Um, you know, cut to the chase. Um, my, the, the love of, the, of my life and I have this, this baby on the way. And, mm-hmm. well, you know, it was having, I was having fun as the Pied Piper and I was actually non-musician, but music junkie was for one, about a year, had was playing in three bands, three paying gigs. Look three, at you! Three, I was playing bass in a blues band only because this this uh, uh, blues band from uh, West Side Liquor from uh, uh, across Swinton Avenue, as they subtly say, um, would come in for open mic and the, the, the keyboard player was playing the bass lines on his Casio and I had my... Uh, my um, what do you call it pawn shop bass in the office was like let me sit in let me sit in that turned into a gig uh, then uh, other guys that were playing like on open mic nights and and, and features you know pass the hat I didn't even have to pay musicians right it was, mm-hmm. it was like LA in the 80s um, and uh, it was just perfect right so hooking up these guys and taking my moments to go sing this harmony with that one and that one put a little group together uh, we had we we actually opened for the reformed Jefferson Starship at uh, the Stephen Talk House in South Beach. We had some pretty good gigs, Amnesty International Festival stuff like that. And then I had this awesome may she rest in peace. Sadly, she's no longer with us, but one of the most wonderful humans ever, Tia, who was a hardcore uh, biker from Hoboken, New Jersey. Unfortunately, she died out in L.A. Um, she was one of the best drummers ever. But she wasn't a drummer. She fronted this band called the Chihuahuas as lead singer. And there was just her, Jenny on drums, just a dynamite little drummer, and a guy named Lex on the bass who wrote all the songs, all the lyrics, all the music, and that was it. Played lead bass and this hardcore chick on the vocals and a drummer. And 
the running joke was she was working for me in the coffee house and I was like this like music Nazi. I had, lit- I had literal lists by the stereo. These mm. genres of music are acceptable. These will not be played on my premises, right? And mm-hmm. so the running joke was, hey, when are you going to let the Chihuahuas play in here? Like, hey, never, right? This, uh, you know, not my joint. But things started to go south with my partner, and I didn't know because he had more shares than I did that he could actually screw me out of it and turn into a whole ugly thing. And it was like, you know, Tia, get your band in here Saturday night. And they were awesome. They were wonderful. They almost blew the windows out of the place. And in my exuberance, my excitement, jumped out from behind the bar with a soup ladle and an ice bucket and jumped up on stage with them. And another gig was born. I became the concussionist for the Chihuahuas. Oh, and they had go-go dancers with big boots. And, and it was unbelievable. <laughs> we had some amazing gigs with them, too. Yeah. So it was all this fantasy time. And then, well... Baby time came around, and like by fate, this weird serendipity, we were literally not more than two, three months pregnant, hardly planned. And remember, I was working in drug treatment. My brother was working for Planned Parenthood. He had since moved on to the funding side of things. His Mm -hmm. director had moved on, but whoever his director's successor was called him in a panic. We desperately need somebody for your old job. Do you know anybody who can do that team male responsibility, male sexuality educator who happens to be looking for a full-time gig with a baby on the way? So <laughs> yeah. like this Planned Parenthood poster boy for a little while. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, my kid grew up while I was uh, doing, I was a sexuality educator for 15 years. And during that time, uh, I met first the brilliant, wonderful Marilyn Volker, a, a legend in Miami, one of the real early uh, one of the San Francisco PhDs, remember the Advanced Institute for the Study of mm-hmm. Human Sexuality? They're still out there in San Francisco. They were one of the first, like, uh, PhD clinical sexology, uh, clinical sexology PhDs that maybe not in academia, but were widely recognized in the field of sexology. A lot of the big mm-hmm. guns, uh, like uh, uh, in the academy in Orlando, where where I attended with the late uh, uh, Bill Granzig. So um, uh, Marilyn Volker introduced me to Susan Lee. May she also rest in peace, sadly. Uh, They're no longer with us. Uh, But Susan studied with the late uh, uh, Helen Singer Kaplan in New York in the 80s, where sex therapy kind of, you know, Masters and Johnson, like, I think, stumbled into it based on their work, which still blows my mind that, you know, how long have we been studying human bodies and medicine and anatomy. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't it was in my lifetime that anybody bothered to look at what happens to human bodies during sexual arousal. Yeah. It still blows my, every time I see Masters of Johnson, 1966, and I go, holy shit, I was born in 1963. Nobody ever <laughs> thought to look at this before then, right? Yeah. But then in the 80s, you know, Helen Kaplan said, um, you forgot one little piece there, like desire. So, of course, we know that was huge. And um, Susan was one of those, one of that crew they studied at, uh, um, I think it was Cornell and Long Island Jewish Hospital. Uh, Michael Perlman, a giant in the field, was one of her supervisors and and Mm. one of the noted figures, uh, especially up in New York, uh, came out of that that crew. So I met Susan, and she was... uh, um, training sex therapists because, uh, as uh, you probably heard through modern institutes, there's still this weird thing. 25 years, I'm trying to figure out the story and I can't 
of why Florida is the only state in the country yeah. that has this thing about using the term certified sex therapist. Which of all places, I would not put that on. I, I would not think that Florida would be the place to say, you know what, we're going to have this regulation, <laughs> you know, and we're going to have this higher field. standard. We're going to have yeah. this academic, like really Florida. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Just yeah. like maybe some sex therapist was drinking with uh, some legislator and they mm-hmm. said, here's a good idea. He probably wrote it up for him. But why yeah. the other 49 states never saw a fit to follow suit? I don't yeah. know. I, but um, it, it was a mystery. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, Susan uh, moved to New York, uh, to Florida from New York and started the, the one of the first institutes to train uh, sex uh, therapists to be sex therapists to meet the requirements for Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, ASEC uh, sets the other standard, you know, by default, right? Because there is mm-hmm. no, it's not a government or a license thing, but, uh, mm-hmm. and they're a lot more stringent than Florida, uh, which again, you know, of course, I'm always for keeping the bar higher. Mm-hmm. So I met Susan and I would uh, teach her sex therapy students like one lecture out of her year-long training, like the family life, sex ed stuff. But then I started noticing working at Planned Parenthood and with Planned Parenthood folks all over the country that there's always this wall. There was the education departments that were always out in the community, you know, begging and pleading for gigs anywhere they can get Mm -hmm. with doors slamming and church arguments and all the rest. And then the clinics and the people working in the clinics were, you know, medical RNs Mm -hmm. and PAs and mostly medical assistants and nurse assistants, CNAs, whatever. Uh, and uh, we did, there was a, uh, a really cool thing, um, which we were all surprised it, uh, it passed. Um, a major grant called Teen Time, where one day a week we had a clinic. It was a partnership between Planned Parenthood, the school board, the health department, Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies, and all the antis were going crazy about it, and it passed anyway. So we had one, one day a week where teens could come in. It's a weird thing about legal, um, uh, I guess, like emancipation of, of sorts, right? Like mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't put a Band-Aid on a paper cut mm-hmm. on a minor without parental consent. You can't mm-hmm. spray a mosquito bite, right? That's medical treatment without parental consent. But if mm-hmm. a kid walks in, a 13-year-old walks in and says, you know, it burns when I pee. I think I have an STD. As soon as the word leaves her mouth, she's legally emancipated, specific to her sexual and reproductive health. Hmm. She can get. She does not need parental consent. And, you know, remember we had Jeb, uh, who I used to call the president's smarter brother, until mm-hmm. I realized what a schmuck he is, too. Um, when he was our governor, and it was all that mess about the, okay, so parental consent might be, a little uh, uh, heavy-handed. So we're going to try parental notification laws. Mm-hmm. Like if a kid's in my office saying, you know, I think I'm pregnant, and if my dad finds out, he's going to beat me up and throw me out of the house. Yeah. My job is to say, well, you sit right here. I'll go call him. And I don't have to tell him, but I have to tell him you're here. Like, oh, I did, like I wanted to be arrested, right? I, please bust me in those days. Now I'm not so quick. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to get busted for giving out condoms at uh, Lollapalooza because uh, um, Trojan didn't show up. So I had 10,000 10, of my own from the health department. But anyway, um, 
I just saw this missing thing that there's this real huge opportunity all over the country of Planned Parenthood clinics for sexual counseling that was not being done. Mm-hmm. And so that's what prompted me to go back to school after my dismal first attempt at pharmacy school uh, to get a master's in uh, mental health counseling. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I was a department of one because, you know, mm-hmm. three times they asked me to be the education director. And I was like, no, I don't want to be an administrator. I kept training my bosses in succession of bosses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I became the vice president of education, training and counseling services. Mm-hmm. fold out business cards. Uh, but yeah. I created this counseling services protocol for the clinics and that's what got me into. So then of course, as you know, got the masters, had to sit and get supervised uh, uh, yeah. counseling for two years before I could sit for my license. So Susan convinced me to go through her sex therapy training institute during that two mm-hmm. years. So as soon as I passed my license exam, I was instantly a certified sex therapist. Mm-hmm. And then it was just a classic uh, mentor apprentice. You know, I knew uh, um, that <clears throat> didn't have the most romantic story towards leading to my PhD. I'm much more proud to be part of modern institutes and what we're trying to do over here mm-hmm. than uh, a little bit more of a, I'll just politely, diplomatically say, um, more traditional, stale mm-hmm. program. But uh, um it, um, it was in large part prompted by knowing that uh, as I became more and more a partner of Susan's, that the time would come. I didn't expect it to come as soon as it did, but that I would be running her institute, so I should probably have a PhD. It wasn't mm-hmm. anything more glamorous than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sadly, she got cancer in, in 2015, um, and we had two, a Florida Institute, and we all had to, also started a second one in New York in, in 2011. Uh, we uh, used the, used to rent the faculty house at Columbia and mm-hmm. all classes there. It was really nice, very Tony. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to finish those and was in a scramble. And again, just as, as uh, uh, serendipitously, Rachel had approached me. Rachel and I went way back, but from uh, weird circumstances, right? Because both my brother and I, with the Planned Parenthood history, knew uh, Rachel's mom, Mona. Yeah. Brilliant, mm-hmm. wonderful woman. Um, because we were like foxhole buddies, you, you know, mm-hmm. because she owned a presidential women's center and uh, we worked at Planned Parenthood. And um, uh, we, we knew Rachel kind of coming up. And then, you know, she went to... Uh, grad school, of course, came psychologists got these like amazing postdocs with giants in the field, like uh, uh, Stan Althoff and and mm-hmm. um, the late great. Uh, why is her name escaping me? Um, the woman who uh, coined uh, uh, PGAD, and um, hmm. oh yeah, she she was uh, died too young in a freak uh, biking accident. Uh, but she was also one of those in that same New York crew, uh, the, the medical, psychological. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rachel approached me to, to uh, kind of uh, yeah. tie our ships together, and uh, we created this. And it's really, mm-hmm. I have to give the far lion's share of the credit to her business acumen. 
Mm-hmm. I love training therapists. I, I, yeah. I'm passionate about it. it, it it's one of my pet peeves. Uh, so, you know, thankfully, again, like a dream come true, I'm able to do that and not have mm-hmm. to worry about so many business things that I know nothing about. Yeah. Uh, that she's a genius with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. I want to take a short break right here. I know I like to do these as little mental health kind of check-ins, pleasure check-ins. And today I'm really looking forward to sharing this with y'all because this is a fantastic resource. So much of the work I do with clients revolves around self-compassion. And it sounds super woo-woo-y. And I know sometimes it feels like, well, what even is that? How do we actually hold space for that? How do we actually practice that? And often I encourage folks to journal. And oftentimes folks feel a sense of um, loss when it comes to journaling, some confusion, right, of where did they begin? How do they do this? Sometimes it feels scary to start journaling because there isn't guidance and it feels like you're going to start spiraling. And I'm so thrilled to share this with y'all. There's this journal. um, It's a guided journal. Walks you through 91 days of like a self-love journal. And it is honestly fantastic. They partnered with psychologists, uh, clinical therapists, researchers, psychiatrists, and other mental health specialists um, who have like, you know, years of experiences and are like really actually helping people walk through their self-love journey. And the company is called Switch. um, And so the journal that they have, it's in three different sections. It walks you through like reframing things, self-kindness, common humanity, mindfulness, which are like the three main components of self-compassion and actually provides you like structured exercises and things to do. Also not to mention, it's like a very, very cute journal. Okay. There's plants all in it. It's very, it's a very well done product and super, super helpful. So highly, highly recommend it. If you feel like journaling is kind of a scary place to go, if you want to like kind of have a little bit more accountability with your check-ins with yourself, maybe you feel like a friend could really benefit from it. Maybe there's a friend going through a really, really rough time right now where they could, you know, practice some self-compassion where maybe they're being really hard on themselves. I'm sure you're a little hard on yourself sometimes. We all are. So I honestly think anybody could benefit from this journal by switch and actually have some support in transforming your negative self-critical thoughts into self-love through self-compassion. So you can use our code TALK20 today at switchresearch.org and you can get 20% off your purchase. Again, that's TALK20 at switchresearch.org and get 20% off your purchase. So I hope you enjoy that and take advantage of this resource while we got it for y'all, okay? And now we can get back to the show. Well, I think, Ricky, it's definitely like... I love hearing some of this background into how you got to where you are because I just, I see so much more of like your personality, which I just love. And I definitely thought that you were like just a much more like quiet kind of guy. But then there's been a few times where like you've said stuff when we're talking about like marijuana and sex or these other things that come up in class where I'm like, oh, Ricky, Ricky's on it. He is on it. Um, and 
really I would fun. love to, yes, I, I would love to get into a little bit, um, you know, you talk about sex publicly, you know, this is part of your specialty, um, but, and your brother kind of like, it sounds like maybe helped inspire you in some ways to be getting into this oh, part yeah, of the field. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you have a daughter as well. Um, and so I'm wondering how you go about those conversations, like being in the position that you are in within this field of sexuality, like how that shows up within your family. Ah, yeah. Interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's, I can't believe I'm going to talk about this. Um, but like, you know, doing everything I did for a living and being, you know, especially in the Planned Parenthood days, right? I mean, I was working mm-hmm. in drug, drug treatment and then for Planned Parenthood of all organizations uh, and, and always been kind of a lefty, uh, progressive, waving my tie-dyed freak flag, you know? I just have a ponytail down to my ass. So oh, I, I can picture it, Ricky. I see it. Oh, definitely. And, and like doing like Girl Scout troop, sex ed groups can you imagine like them walk me walking in and like oh my god i always want them over um but uh it was a weird family dynamic right and and hmm. even as hip and liberal as i pr- pr- you know pretended tried real hard always thought i was um now i'm getting old uh but it was still like you know i'm having a daughter and had all of those same kind of like you know, conservative, like, oh, I have a daughter. I, I remember one of my graduate school professors. So she said, uh, she told the story of her, how she told her three daughters as they grew up that sex is a wonderful thing that people do when they get their PhDs, right? And <laughs> my thoughts, like, if I had a son, I'd be waiting up for him and come home and, like, high five him when he tells me he got laid the first time. Like, my boy. But no, I have a daughter. I have to lock her in her room until she's 30. Mm-hmm. So it really, I really did go through a lot of that. I went through a lot yeah. of like thinking about dads of girlfriends in college that never dawned on me. Like they come visit to school and I'm like laying there in a robe, like, Hey, how you doing pops? And like, never occurred to me. He could be sitting there like thinking, I'm going to choke the life out of you. you know? <laughs> yeah. Filing my daughter. you know? And I did kind of go through that. And mm-hmm. Fortunately, you know, it's a small field and small community, even sexuality educators and sex therapists. And so there's always been these kind of conversations, but the stories always seem to run the same, right? Like the families, the kids are either like uh, um, Deborah Hafner and I once talked about this. Somebody should write a book about the kids of sexologists, right? Mm -hmm. Either those kids that are just like, you know, the kid in kindergarten cop, right? Boys have a penis and girls have a vagina. And all, every, all the kids giggle and the adults are mortified, right? Or mm-hmm. they're those, you know, oh, mother, please. There she goes again, right? The ones mm-hmm. that want nothing to do with it. But more well, often, have you seen uh, the, the show Sex Education on Netflix? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. A little bit yeah. of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. More often than not, that's the house where all the kids go and the kids' friends know that they can, mm-hmm. right? But... Um, <clears throat> gratefully for that little conservative Archie Bunker that lives somewhere in there. Um, my kid, you know, grew up really liberal parents and, and liberal kid, you know, politically, it was none of that like Michael J. Fox rebellion mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but 
personally, I hope she's not embarrassed that I'm talking about her in this way, but she was a little more conservative, I guess, because she grew mm-hmm. up seeing. And, you mm-hmm. know, much as sometimes people think, you know, sex therapy is sexy work. But let's be honest, sex ed is anything but. And mm-hmm. I was, you know, people say, oh, you're sexual. Ooh, you're a sexuality educator. Like, what part of that do you think is sexy? STDs, teen pregnancy, violent, abusive, like sex ed is anti-sexy, mm-hmm. right? But she grew up around this just sexual health and, and books around and always, we didn't really have a lot of like sit down conversations, but there was just always such a comfort, right? Mm-hmm. She was diagnosed as a type one diabetic at 18 months. So, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of hands-on mm-hmm. stuff had to happen and it was single dad for a number of years. So if, you know, mm-hmm. like most diabetic girls are prone to yeast infections, so you've got to deal mm-hmm. with you've got to deal with. And it was just a kind of matter of factness. And yeah. But the, the bigger family was funny too. Even my parents were classic opposites attract. Dad was a wise-ass Navy guy from Brooklyn, and Mom was a goody-two-shoes Pris from the Grand Concourse in the Bronx. And mm-hmm. they couldn't, you know, fairy tale, you know, met on the beach in Far Rockaway. But couldn't have been more opposite. And mm-hmm. mom, too, wicked liberal. <clears throat> mom was like almost arrested at an anti-protest. This was 1965. I was two years old in Sacramento. A gynecologist was being protested by anti-choice folks, mm-hmm. right to lifers. And my mom was part of a, a defense line anti-protest mm-hmm. uh, with all three of her kids. I was. I guess my my oldest brother was five. I was a little baby, uh, and like again, daring the cops. See where I get it, right? Daring the cops, bust the lady mm-hmm. with three babies. I dare you, right? So she was always very activist and and liberal, but really conservative from her upbringing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, escaping the Holocaust uh, with my grandparents. They left from Vienna. Uh, actually, wasn't even. I, we were first generation born on mom's side. Uh, mm-hmm. She was born in Vienna. So, you know, she's the only woman in a family of five. She raised three boys that, you know, it was like, oh, my button fell off. She's like, oh, you want to wear that shirt? Like, yeah. I said, well, you better learn to sew because I got shit to do. Mm-hmm. So she raised boys that sewed and yeah. changed poopy diapers and, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And But yeah. there was a divide, right? Because when she retired and we did it backwards, mom and dad followed Larry and I to Florida. Mm. And so usually the kids follow the parents down, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but they had their first grandchild. Of course, they had to be close by. Yeah. Uh, but mom, when she retired from being a physical therapist, volunteered at our Planned Parenthood clinic. Mm. This mm-hmm. old, old Jewish mother was doing uh, birth control options, counseling and HIV mm-hmm. testing. And, and yeah, yeah. classic moment sitting in a huge auditorium. She's in the back with getting her HIV 104 testing training and mm-hmm. talking about all the roots of transmission and, you know, unprotected anal sex with internal ejaculation. And she, we hear from the back of the room, that's how you talk in front of your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Had a lot of moments like that. But then yeah. dad and our older brother, you know, they would literally like, oh, there they go. They would get up and leave the room. Mm-hmm. Mom would get excited about, oh, we got these new latex Japanese condoms at the clinic today. And they'd be up, oh, there she goes. And mm-hmm. leave. So it was, yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it, well, I think first it's important to just note that like 
while yes, you can grow up pretty liberal, right? And having more like progressive type views that there is still stuff to unpack, um, you know, and it sounds like you really recognize that coming up when you had your daughter of like, oh, I need to check myself and unpack some of these ways that I might like, you know, continuously perpetuate like, uh, you know, patriarchy onto her or these double standards onto her. Um, and yeah, so I think that's always important to kind of just hold space for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we, we share that in common in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. We're able to grow. I mean, that was the thing I remember, uh, the, the, the craziness when uh, uh, um, Kerry, uh, John Kerry was running against George W. Bush. And they called him flip-flopper because he changed his position. You mean grew, evolved, learned, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. You just <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think, honestly, that's a part that a lot of people think that because they hold these liberal views that they don't have these things to unpack. And when it comes up, you know, that moment, it feels like there's a lot of shame there when really it's just like, well, yeah, like, because this is what's, this is the ideology that's reinforced everywhere. So of course, of course, that's going to come up. (laughs) And that's why it's so critical to our training. I don't mean to like jump ship, but it's such a problem. In mm-hmm. health professions, when people, I mean, I, I used to work by this uh, uh, wonderful, I don't know what to call it, uh, phrase, koan. Uh, I was first heard from uh, another Planned Parenthood director, uh, but it came from an Oglala Sioux priest named Father Reuben that says, wrap cotton around your feet before you step into the life of another. And I think that, you know, really underscores the audacity, the balls that it, it is to do this kind of work and to mm-hmm. do this work without unpacking our own mm-hmm. is pretty ballsy, I think. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's and, and there's potential to make you really not good at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Well, and you do a lot of supervising as well. So I'm wondering like what kinds of things you notice through doing the work of supervision that like is a really common thread or something that like really frustrates you or like gets you going that when you're working with your supervisees, you're like, oh, this is, this is still a thing. Not much. I'm happy to say, right. Mm. Because, you know, it's a biased group. Yeah people who want to be sex therapists, but I mean, I've seen extremely strong reactions to porn. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's common, like I see in, in, in um, Facebook groups for therapists, anybody just mentions porn and immediately there's a flurry of uh, it has to be porn addiction kinds of response. Mm-hmm. Again, I, uh, I'll refrain from going off on that rant. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, people can go all, as you know, people can go through graduate school and pass a test and get a license and be in practice. Even something like the SAR training, the sexual attitude mm-hmm. reassessment. My brother and I once years ago were at a conference. It amounted to an intervention. This woman was having a break, a, a meltdown over. I can't believe they're forcing me to watch porn. They tell me I oh, have Lord. And we're looking at each other like, 
he wants to be a sex therapist. And especially in those, you know, those were kind of vanilla SAR trainings. It was nothing mm-hmm. so shocking. But imagine somebody who's a licensed therapist who wants to be a sex therapist, like being apoplectic over something like, and, you know, you could close your eyes. We're not going to strap you in a Alex chair like uh, Clockwork Orange and, you know, pry your eyeballs open. Mm-hmm. Just, so there's a lot. It's it's really runs through the field. It's just well, I, I got one of my favorite rants of putting. I doubt if I'll have a gravestone, but uh, I don't plan on going out that way. But wherever it ends up being etched, I wouldn't mind being known for it, right? Because I've just been so frustrated for so many years, and especially I can't help. I know we're all in the same business, but marriage and family therapists. It's mm-hmm. in their name, like yeah. what get married and how do they have families and how do you do that for a living and not talk about sex how do you actively avoid talking about sex Mm -hmm. right so i might go to marketing line right what i call my jewish mother guilt trip marketing line is to compare it to plumbers that don't do toilets because nobody in their right mind would tolerate that Mm -hmm. right especially if your toilet's backed up and you stand in your bathroom and there's a plumber standing there saying no i'm sorry I only do sinks and showers. You're like, what, what, what do you mean? You, you don't do toilets. Mm-hmm. Oh, conservative plumbing school. We didn't talk about toilets. <laughs> no, then get out of my house and get out of plumbing. Okay? Went to conservative plumbing school. That's I mean, great. I don't want to slag, but like there are Christian sex therapists. There's an organization of Christian yeah. sex therapists, and I can't help wonder how they deal with orientation and gender and sexually marginalized people and, and mm-hmm. don't do it because God doesn't want us to. I just, I can't wrap my head around that. But well, what I don't understand is how can they say that like God doesn't want us to like, how do you know what God does and doesn't want for us? And also like, I don't know, I'm not yeah. religious. And it's like, we've talked <laughs> well, about this in some episodes, it, yeah. but <laughs> you know, how, where is he saying you should not have sex? Well, like you need people, to have sex, have sex to ways. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And, and not too much, you know, you can enjoy it, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like, there used to be this old, like before, like the 30 year run to try and get hypersexuality clinically defined in, in the DSM, which has failed mm-hmm. now three editions of DSM. But yeah, it'd be this old joke. Uh, the definition of promiscuous is anybody who has sex more often than I do, whoever happens to be saying that, right? Yep. So, yeah. It's so judgy. Yeah. I feel like this topic of sex addiction and like hypersexuality comes up so frequently. And I know I touched on this in my episode with Joe because he, you know, has this whole history with that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I'm wondering if you can touch on kind of your your perspective on sex addiction for a minute? Well, it's strong. I, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I piss off Rachel sometimes. It's a little too strong <laughs> just because it, it, well, first when it's presented as a treatment model, mm-hmm. a treatment model, I've never seen anything more perfectly suited to destroy the lover's dynamic in a couple, right? Mm. It's, it's, to me, it's very similar to, uh, and this is another, I, I think, way too common failure among therapists, even marriage 
counselors, I have to say, with affairs. Yes. As soon as those labels cheater and cheated on get hung, couples counseling is like done. Now you can, and I've actually heard of this literally, I I say it like figuratively, but I've heard of this literally where a therapist will pull a chair next to theirs for the poor cheated on and they're sitting across from the cheater and that's not couples therapy. It's like, what does the cheater have to do to show enough guilt, enough remorse, uh, enough, you know, begging and pleading and even the big guns, even like the Gottmans, all of this, their, their atonement, attunement, it, it, it amounts to an inquisition that mm. kills. The, and, and my worst complaint is whatever crisis brought them in, whatever they're calling it, it's almost always self or partner diagnosed. Right. Mm-hmm. And the therapist just runs with it. Um, that becomes the new permanent Instead of a crisis that we as therapists can help a couple through, that's, that's the new forever. You're the addict and you're the partner of the addict. That's your new identity for the rest of your lives. And that's not sexy. That turns the partner into a, a parent, mm-hmm. right? The addict is the adolescent that can never be trusted. I remember I supervised a woman that had this couple. I wanted, I said, my first question is, why does this guy come home from work? Every single day he'd come home from work. The wife would be standing inside the door waiting for him. Not a hello, hi, dear, kiss on the cheek, how was work? He would walk in the door and her first words were, did you masturbate at work today? Let me see your phone. Oh, right? mm-hmm. Like every time I recall that, I just picture the 50s, you know, angry housewife with the apron and the rolling pin, you know, and the disgust. And he's just this humiliated, beaten down. Mm-hmm. How, could they, how could they be lovers again? Mm-hmm. Unless one of us gets a hold of them and just knocks them out of that dynamic and back into a, a lover's one. Mm-hmm. And- I had never heard of a therapist pulling the chair over and doing that. I mean, uh, my face, I could never imagine. Yeah. That is so harmful. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucked up. It is. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't heal. It doesn't help heal couples. No. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Esther Perel, of course, and, and yeah. the book on affairs. People just, uh, you know, another of the big guns. I shouldn't be slagging people in a public forum, but um, it was in the New York Times. So I'm just quoting the paper, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was this big conference years ago. Uh, that a whole bunch, it was no, no debate. It wasn't one side against another. It was just a whole bunch of therapists. Some were sex therapists like Marty Klein, uh, Esther Perel, who's an honorary sex therapist, marriage and mm-hmm. family therapist, and Sue Johnson and, you know, some of those big guns. And Sue Johnson was actually quoted in the New York Times as saying, the idea that an affair could be good for a relationship is the craziest thing I ever heard. I thought but it could first, be. My first thought was that you're this renowned therapist, and that's the craziest thing you ever heard. <laughs> and then, yes, of course, it can be. Mm-hmm. It can be great. It could be like just what the relationship needs to go. Holy shit! Yeah. How did we end up here? Mm-hmm. Right? Now, like I can understand that, and you can understand that, but can you unpack that a little bit for listeners who might be like, "What the fuck? No!" If somebody cheats, like well, that is the absolute death of the relationship. Yeah. Again, I, I quote uh, Esther. And her brilliance when she talks about the like the typical European versus the typical American reaction to an affair, mm-hmm. 
right? Whereas the first one is like, well, what does this mean for us? We done? Yeah. You want to be with that one? You want to be with, right? It's, it's adult, honestly, and it's workable mm-hmm. in therapy. The typical American reaction is how could you do this to me? And that whole mm-hmm. morality play and the big betrayal. And of course, you know, the new language in the addiction circles is uh, betrayal, trauma, and everything that just wrapped everything in trauma in this ever going, ongoing effort to get cl- clinical legitimacy when the word itself, addiction, will never have clinical relevance. It's a user defined concept, right? I'm mm-hmm. sorry, another tear, but you can't advertise chocolates as addictively delicious and then put people in inpatient treatment for, you know, jerking off too much and uh, use the same language. It's uh, no. But I digress again. You cracked me up. You really cracked me up. (laughs) Uh, Well, and I think like both of those things, they the really like the purpose to me, the consequence of it is really just demonizing and stigmatizing sex. Period. Which I think ultimately comes from purity culture comes from our overarching systems of white supremacy, which is including uh, purity culture in that, that I think is so the purity culture pieces is less in Europe um, to where they can have those conversations and it not be this huge thing, but even just our relationship with monogamy in the States and how cheating is this huge, huge thing. Um, Obviously, yes, that person is hurt. That person can absolutely feel a sense of betrayal, right? And that is hard for them. Um, But also like in that same hand, I think probably where therapists kind of go wrong is not holding space for the and piece because it is, yes, you are hurt. And there was also something happening in the relationship to begin with that made this person do this. And like, yes, we probably need to hold some space for the fact that this is a lot to take in. Sure. But (laughs) maybe, maybe for both people. I don't know. Uh, One of my favorite ends is your partner loves you and they did this. Yes. It doesn't mean because they did this, they don't love you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's a lot that, that can really, uh, a lot of good mm-hmm. can be done if yeah. they're a little, you know, a little better at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Though. I mean, we just even in what we're talking about now, like we're holding space for really difficult things that like we talked about at the beginning, if you haven't checked your own bias and your own experiences and your own feelings about things, then that's going to come up and you're not going to be able to hold that space and help people navigate through these really tough things in a way that is actually healing and beneficial for them long term. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same yeah. time, it's a balancing act sometimes to try not to overassume mm-hmm. our biases, right? So yeah. to maintain that, that kind of clinical neutrality, mm-hmm. uh, not not be so quick to judge, although it is part of our job, right? I think that's well, a, yeah. do you think that there even is a such thing as clinical neutrality? Um I think there's such a thing as an, uh, a, a constant intentional effort towards trying, 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're all, you know, we're also blinded by our own privileges and biases and and all the rest of that that baggage. And I'm glad that's really become part of the conversation. Sometimes it seems to 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 uh, uh, overtake sexuality. Uh, as part of the conversation, but it's important, you know, pendula needs to have time to swing. Uh, mm-hmm. been stuck too far in one way mm-hmm. too long. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, gets a little weird. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I gotta say, uh, there's something about, you know, this implicit once or twice explicit message that, you know, I could take my, white male cisgendered heterosexual privilege and shut the fuck up when like uh, hey what when, when when did I, i've been fighting this fight a long time right when did i become the enemy i <laughs> that, that's been something i've been getting mm-hmm. to for a long time mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah yeah but it's yeah it's really well, there, time for sex therapy. It just really is. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if I could, like, I feel like a, uh, a ADD on display, but if I could just shift the channel again, you mentioned uh, before, like sexual medicine. It's just, mm-hmm. uh, it's so critical and we're still missing it, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think it's fair to say that, not that it was born, it's been around a long time, but sexual medicine was definitely reborn in 1998 mm-hmm. with Viagra. Right. Mm-hmm. Before then, physicians really didn't give a crap. And, and after then, they're like, oh, great, sex therapist. And but I mm-hmm. think still since 1998, we have not completely we haven't integrated. That's another drum my brother and I like to bang. I think mm-hmm. of the fantasies I will talk about uh, in public. Uh, one of them is that someday there'll be a sex therapist in every gynecologist's office, every urologist's mm-hmm. office. And yeah. just while we're at it, cardiologists, just across the board, uh, fertility. What mm-hmm. could be more sexless than than fertility uh, treatment? Obstetrics. That's to me. That's the one that blows my mind more than anything else. The only area of medicine where it's di- disease. It's not disease that makes you a patient. Hmm. Right. It's obstetrics. Everything else. You're a cardiac patient because you have cardiac disease. You're an oncology patient it's because you have cancer. If you're an obstetrics patient, it's because you're pregnant. And how did you get that way? And how do you go through nine months of pregnancy care and labor and delivery and post care and avoid that whole subject? Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. Explode. Yeah. Well, so especially for fertility treatment. And I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess I. I've never been through the process, so it's probably why I haven't thought of it and it hasn't come up for me. But yeah, like when you are trying to get pregnant right. and you are working with a physician, it would make a whole lot of fucking sense to have a referral it's to a also tragedy. be working with a sex therapist. I've seen it many times. It's a tragedy that these couples are spending years and tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. You'd think, and multiple failures, right, and all the heartbreak that goes with it, you'd think when they succeed... And those weird, you know, drugs they use, they make your ovaries like Jiffy Pop. So sometimes they're like triplets and uh, um, you'd think they'd be the happiest people in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they're in a divorce court within a year because the relationship could just could not stand the strain of that much 
The only well, time a- I ever hear guys complain about being treated like a sex object. The only time. Yeah, well, there's a lot of stress on the actual just act of sex between the two people that are trying to have a baby that it's like, yeah. Yeah, but sometimes one is trying harder than the other. Yeah. And the other hears, get in here, I'm ovulating. It's like, oh, great. There's a sexy come on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he feels like I'm just a sperm donor now. And yeah. uh, And then pushed off and pushed out. It's There's a lot that needs sex therapy. There's so yeah. many areas where sex therapy is needed. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like we were talking about before we started rolling, uh, it's just, it's, it's become this rant because I know everybody can't specialize in everything and we need specialists, mm-hmm. right? I just, I couldn't be more grateful for the trauma specialists that I have the pleasure of working with because I got none of that in my training, right? But sex has to be a specialty, right? For people who work with couples and even for individuals, for therapists who are invited into the deepest, most personal, private parts Mm -hmm. of their lives. And I think this is a sad truth. Most therapists would be a lot more comfortable talking about someone's most horrific, painful sexual abuse than their most ecstatic, wonderful sexual experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, because things well, are so sexualized, but we don't actually allow for things to be sexy. Yeah. yeah and so yeah. it's like, yeah, with infertility, even working through like sexual trauma, like where is the space for folks to have encouragement and be held through finding and engaging in what's sexy? that desire, that arousal, like it's everywhere else, right? Like movies and online and advertisements to be sexualized, but we don't let things actually be sexy. And like that excitement of like, oh, like I'm feeling really horny. Like I'm really, I'm feeling sexy is like just automatically this negative thing that makes other people feel uncomfortable because then it's like, oh, think bad things are going to happen. And like, that's not, you don't look good at being in that way. But it's like, well, but it's fucking everywhere. It's like, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. And that thing you were talking about before, the overarching themes that we all Mm kind of grew up under, um, damp and sexy too. Yeah. The best couple I ever had, I thought, I remember thinking every sex therapist should get one of these. This is like a gift from the sex therapy gods. Hot Mm -hmm. young couple, really into each other, really sexy, got pregnant, had a little panic and came to me and said, I will quote them forever. They said, please, you got to help us not turn into our parents. I said, that I can do. Right. (laughs) And they were, they were the best. They're just, I mean, they came, they continued coming to sex therapy through the pregnancy after they would literally sit in my office with baby on the breast and mm-hmm. plan their, their sexy dates. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't everybody do this? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of makes me think back to uh, what sometimes is a Band-Aid, things like Viagra, where, you know, there are things that you can do that sometimes avoid you doing that work because that work is hard and that work is uncomfortable sometimes, that work is scary. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm wondering for you where you really see the place for things like sexual medicine that can be used in a way that is actually helpful and is not just putting a a Band-Aid perhaps on things. Yeah, well, definitely. We as sex therapists, I think, this. how do you say no to this? 
we can tell medical providers that we can improve the compliance and the success of their treatment, right? Because you tell a guy to take a pill mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and, you know, he goes home and takes a pill and he starts watching his watch and watching his crotch and watching his watch and thinking like Jack and Watching, his, dog, watching like, his watch and watching his crotch. <laughs> I can't with you, Ricky. That's great. <laughs> waiting for this thing to grow, right? Instead of half an hour, 20 minutes with a sex therapist. Look, take a pill, forget about it. Go wash the car or something, right? And then just do everything you did without the pill. Sexy thoughts, friction and fantasy, Right, the mm-hmm. pill is not an aphrodisiac. It's not going to make you horny. Mm-hmm. It's just a plumbing thing, right? Teach him how to use the pill. And I, I don't like these apps now. You know, it's like get hard or your money back. That's that's a. Uh, uh, I have stats from urologists and and folks like Michael Perlman. The numbers. I have a, a number of urologists that tell me half the Viagra scripts they write don't get refilled. Mm-hmm. It's really not this miracle boner in a pill that people think it is. Yeah. You guys take it like a club drug, you know, like, mm, no, Mm. it doesn't just grow boners out of nowhere. So, yeah, it's great if a guy, you know, there's not a lot that talk therapy is going to do for uh, a guy who's, you know, like like my age, like 58 and pre-diabetic and hypertensive and overweight. That's a metabolic thing. He's going to have ED. He's going to need Viagra, but coupled with sex therapy, so he doesn't feel like a failure. So mm-hmm. his partner doesn't feel insulted that, oh, mm-hmm. I used to just, you know, show your boob and you chase me around. Now you need a pill. Forget it. Go have sex with your pill. Right. Mm-hmm. All of those great sex therapy issues that physicians aren't having those conversations. Yeah. So just yeah. imagine the doc saying, here's a script for Viagra. And I got a sex therapist I want you to talk to before you go to the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a world. That would be mm. awesome. Yeah. What? That, that's a no-brainer. Right. Even think of things like uh, GI. These people mm-hmm. who go through bariatrics and these huge, right? You don't think there's body image and sexuality issues that should be talked about? Mm-hmm. And addressing, like, the, the, the unrealistic expectations, like you're going to wake up from anesthesia looking like a, 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 a Sports Illustrated model? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of therapy that, and it really should be a sex therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so many things that happen in our society that just don't and it all comes make back, sense. It all comes back to our discomfort with sex, right? What is mm-hmm. the most universal? What else can we say every human being on the planet has in common? And that's the thing we can't talk about. How crazy is yeah. that? <laughs> it's weird, but I'm glad, you know, people like us are doing this work. Yeah. I mean, we're not worried about job security. That's <laughs> bad, right? We're not going to work ourselves out of a job anytime soon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you've mentioned a few things already, um, but I guess a place I want to kind of like leave us off on here is like, what do you hope? Maybe if one thing more than anything, do you hope to see change in the field of sex therapy, let's say in the next 10 years? Mm, Much better integration with sexual medicine, which is happening Mm -hmm. uh, slowly, but I I hope it continues. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely much, much more 
uh, again, happening, but continued. Um, uh, I know it sounds corny to talk about these days, but we have to, and, and we should be should have been talking about it all along. You know, the the DEI stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. These, uh, it's it's been a very, I mean, ASECT has stepped up. We were at a conference years ago, and the brilliant, wonderful Judith Steinhardt from New York City stood up and just called everybody out. It was a plenary mm-hmm. session. Everybody was in the room together, and she just said, I'd want everybody to stand up and look around this room and tell me if you see the same thing I see. And in the it's past, all white people. A sea of white people. And in the past 20 years, it has changed mm-hmm. wonderfully. But some of the other professional organizations... Like Star is awesome. It's wonderful. It's like oh, it's like every conference is like going back to grad school. But hmm. truth is, it's like either high holiday services or Canadians. You know, it's a bunch of New York Jews and folks from Montreal and mm-hmm. very very homogenous. Uh, right. Everybody has sex. <clears throat> I mean, I'm glad, not glad, but you know, for to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of what gets the most attention in terms of sex problems, uh, like sex addiction, are pretty white problems, right? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of sex addicts in communities of color because, mm-hmm. fuck, really? <laughs> it's having, you know. Um, what, el- what else are white people's sex problems, Ricky? <laughs> uh, oh. Wow, we'd have to do another hour on that. <laughs> that one I'd have to prep for. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk to you about my uh, p- my potential doctoral project, what I'm thinking for this. So um, <laughs> we'll have to dive into that more. But thank you so much for uh, sharing everything. Talking to you. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, if people do want to follow your work at all or get more like involved in the things that you're doing, um, any places that they can kind of follow you or get in contact with you if um, interested? Well, I don't have a big footprint, but modern 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 sex therapy institutes dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. My brother and I have a little YouTube, uh, what was formerly a radio show, until we shook off the FCC censor. Uh, sex talk with the Siegel Brothers on YouTube. Amazing. Can, uh, join us over there one of these days. I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ricky. Thank you, Taylor. I'll talk to you soon. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for making it all the way through and keeping your ears, your hearts, and your minds open. It would mean so much to me if you could take a second or two after listening to this episode to leave a review on iTunes and let me know what you're enjoying about the show. I love reading you know, what your favorite episodes are, where you guys listen, um, and definitely feel free to share this with a friend. I mean, part of how we break down the stigmas around these topics is by talking about them, right? And, and sharing them with more people. So definitely share the podcast. Um, and again, really wanting to include all of you in this podcast. So if you have questions or you want to share a thought or an experience, please send in a voice memo to it at gmail.com. And I'm really excited to keep having these conversations and uh, breaking down these stigmas. So thank you all so, so, so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll talk to you next time. Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. 
Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity.